Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Jeremy Friedman, Assistant Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, and he'll be talking about his book, Shadow Cold War, the Sino-Soviet Competition for the Third World, a new paperback edition of which came out last year, 2018, with the University of North Carolina Press. In an era of apparent geopolitical fragmentation, with competing voices in global affairs seemingly becoming ever more numerous and cacophonous, it's not unusual to hear expressions of a kind of nostalgia for the apparently simpler Cold War era and the purported stability of a world divided into two camps. But as Jeremy Friedman lays out lucidly and in compelling detail in Shadow Cold War, things were of course never that simple. The Sino-Soviet split, which ran at least from the 1960s until the 1980s, has been examined in the past from one side or the other in terms of competing political interests among these two socialist giants. But not before has it really been presented quite so persuasively as a division based at heart on two quite different revolutionary programmes and agendas. Drawing on archives all over the world in multiple languages, Friedman's book traces the origins of these agendas from the experiences of revolution in each of Russia and China and how these continued to manifest themselves in the foreign policy priorities of each place in the latter half of the 20th century. In the process, he offers a really engaging and fresh interpretation of the relationship between these vitally important countries, as well as a new frame for understanding a wide range of questions, from the relationship between liberation and socialist revolution in Marxist thought, to the broader role played by ideology and foreign policy, and many more. But to discuss these uh, weighty matters and perhaps some lighter ones as well, I'll say, Jeremy Friedman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for appearing. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful book and something that uh, personally is very close to my own interests. So uh, I'm delighted to have the chance to talk about it. Um, but perhaps uh, before we do talk about it, I'll begin by asking you about your own background and, uh, and how you came to the subject of the book. Um, so... So the book, as you know, is based on my dissertation, um, which was originally written uh, at Princeton. Um, my interest in communism goes back a little bit further than that. Um, I actually, I started taking Russian in college and took Chinese in graduate school, uh, in part because in undergrad, I had been a, a double major in history and philosophy, um, particularly sort of German idealist philosophy. Uh, and communism, I didn't end up going to do a PhD in philosophy, which is a long story in itself. Um, I decided to go to history instead. and and Communism seemed to be uh, the most um, interesting way to sort of combine history and philosophy in the sense that it is uh, the most coherent and comprehensive attempt to implement Western philosophy in practice, to sort of you know, rebuild society from first principles on the basis of philosophical inquiry. Um, and so because of that, I've been always interested in, in revolutions, ideologies. Um, and so that's really where the interest in this book came from. Um, in particular, this book is uh, situated really at kind of the turning point between the old left and the new left, 
Um, and I see the 1960s and decolonization as really the crucial factor um, that sort of shifts the, the discourse of the left and the, the imagination of the left from what we know as the old left, sort of the working class industrial left of the first world, you know, think 1930s era uh, unions and communist parties to sort of what we now know as the new left um, encompassing, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, you know, um, feminism, environmentalism, all sorts of other things we associate with the new left today. Um, so I see the 1960s as this crucial turning point. Right, right. Well, that's that, that's that's really interesting to hear. Actually, that the kind of origins of your interest in the subject are uh, kind of uh, yeah philosophical, as you said, and and disciplinary more than necessarily being directly linked to uh, to Russia and China uh, as, as as places. Um, I mean, as you said, you started the the languages at different times. Um, did you feel uh, a, a kind of increasing affinity with with the places and and the, and the peoples? As well as you were learning those, or, or was, uh, was 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 did the mainstay of your interest remain the uh, sort of historical and philosophical side of things? Well, I mean, I've certainly I've spent a lot of time in both countries. Um, the archival research took quite a bit of time. Um, it, it takes a while to learn both languages, I'm sure you know. Um, and so, I mean, and you know, a lot of formative experiences happen along the way when you're 20 years old and you go to Russia for months at a time. Um, you know, my first girlfriend was Russian, and so on and so forth. Um, so I certainly develop uh, an attachment to both places. Um, but, uh, you know, the book itself is sort of global in scope. The current book I'm, I'm working on, which maybe I'll talk about later, is also sort of even more global in scope. And I've had to learn new languages for the new book as well. Um, so while I do have a certain affinity for both Russia and China, I think the, the intellectual interest remains global. And, and and you say it, you know, it had uh, had quite early origins. Actually, you mentioned, I think, in the preface, uh, a kind of hint at something which I really wanted to ask about, which is that it may even have started as far back as an eighth grade term paper. Uh, could you elaborate a little on 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 what that connection is? Yeah, well, yeah, in eighth grade we were assigned. Um, I think this was supposed to be sort of our first training exercise in in research, and we were assigned topics in twentieth century American history. Um, and for some reason, I got assigned. Um, U.S. entry into the Vietnam War, which was, you know, quite, uh, you know, a complicated topic for an 11-year-old. Um, <laughs> and so I took a few books out of the library. I think I took one book um, out by a general, one book um, by, you know, a sort of a left-wing journalist, and then one book by Richard Nixon. Um, read all three books and came to the conclusion that not only were they, you know, debating the nature of the war or whatever, but they were talking about three completely different stories. You know, the, the facts weren't the same. Nothing was the same. Um, and so that sort of led me down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out what actually happened in Vietnam. Well, I had to learn about the Cold War. I had to learn about communism. You know, within two years, I had sort of started with like Hobbes and Locke, working my way through the Western philosophical canon to get to Marx to understand communism to figure out the Cold War. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, that eighth grade teacher has a lot to answer for, I suppose. And uh, maybe that should be encouragement to anyone teaching kids of that age that, uh, you know, not to be, not to, uh, rein in their ambition in terms of what they can expect kids to uh, to get into because uh, it's obviously had pretty great results in your case. Um, and then, and I guess I also then wanted to ask uh, just uh, in relation to what you mentioned about doing the research in, in multiple locations and um, uh, and different countries. You know, at a time, of course, when uh, research and archival work in uh, Russia, China, and elsewhere is increasingly difficult and, and sensitive. Um, did you have many kind of problems or encounter many difficulties in accessing the, the materials that then uh, that, that form the basis of the, the dissertation and then the book? 
Well, so Russia is actually more open for researchers than people might think, um, especially now, as a matter of fact. I was just in Moscow as recently as April, um, and they've released essentially 20 years worth of new materials from the Central Committee archives um, that are now accessible. So really, um, Russia's probably as good as it's been at any point since 1994 at the moment for archival research. Um, and with Russia, so the KGB archive is closed. The Defense Ministry archive is closed. Much of the Politburo material is closed. Um, that's not accessible to foreign researchers. But the material that is open, that has been declassified, um, is relatively easy to access, except for the, some of the ministries themselves. The foreign ministry is a bit more complicated, which I've, I've spent time in the foreign ministry. Um, but the, the archives that are, that are from the party that are under the Central Archival Administration are actually um, relatively simple to, to access. So, so Russia um, is easier than people would think. Um, China, I got very, very lucky with China. Um, I'm not sure um, what your listeners know about the situation in the Chinese archives, um, but I was able to do archival research in China in 2008, 2009, 2010, which was really the peak of openness in China. Um, they had just begun opening um, the foreign ministry archive in, I think, about 2004. Um, and by about 2008, they had released about 80,000 documents from 1949 to 1965. Um, and at the time, they were talking about, I mean, I remember going there in 2009, and the, the director said, oh, yeah, within two years, we'll be declassified through 1978. It's all going, you know, and we were so excited about it. Um, and then, you know, Xi Jinping came to power, and the Chinese closed it down. And now they have a brand new archival center in the foreign ministry archive. And literally, every single document that I cite in this book has been reclassified in China, every single one. Um, and you need, even Chinese scholars can't see them. You need ministerial level clearance to see any of the documents. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be there at precisely the window of maximum openness in China. But at this point, um, and, and there were periods when we had workarounds, the foreign ministry archive was closed, but you could get things at provincial archives. The provincial archives have caught on to this game and now they don't really let foreign researchers in, you know, in, in Chengdu or in Kunming or wherever else you wanted to go. Um, and so, so yeah, China's become much tougher as far as, I don't know how much, how, how far you want me to get into the weeds. I have some strange stories of going to archives in Mozambique and Tanzania and such. Um, well, I mean, we can, we can maybe get to some of that on, along the way if, uh, if, uh, if it, uh, if it, if it uh, pops up. Um, but uh, I think that, yeah, for those, for those two kind of the big, the big, bigger, bigger main countries in the picture. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting to hear. I mean, um, I guess, yeah, a lot of people have realized that those uh, latter day uh, who won era uh, the atmosphere in China was was actually a time of glorious uh, liberal liberalism and openness, even if it didn't quite seem like it at the time. I, I guess the uh, reassessment at this point makes that suddenly look like a, a golden era of some kind. Uh, but in any case, um, yeah, uh, we'll perhaps jump right into the book then, uh, having having heard a bit about uh, how it kind of came about and what underlay it all the way back, as you mentioned, uh, to age eleven. Um, so yeah, you begin the introduction. Uh, a tale of two revolutions uh, with a really fascinating little snippets of a 1959 conversation between Gamal Abdel Nasser and uh, Che Guevara, who you sort of bring out as examples of two distinct revolutionary programs, the agendas uh, that I mentioned there uh, briefly in the introduction. Um, so perhaps you could just uh, start us off by giving us a picture of these two revolutions in each of Russia, the USSR and, and, and China, respectively, and, and how those strands kind of undergird uh, the arguments of the book as a whole. Well, so the distinction I draw in the in the introduction is that, of course, 
Lenin conflated the idea of the anti-imperialist revolution and the anti-capitalist revolution when he said that imperialism is the highest age of capitalism. That meant the two were, were necessarily connected. Um, and I argue this is sort of a mistaken conflation by Lenin. Um, and so if you look at the Russian Revolution, right, the, the Russian Revolution really is um, a very domestic revolution. Um, it's about correcting domestic power imbalances and domestic injustices. Um, and so, uh, you know, the tradition of the Russian Revolution before Marxism gets introduced to Russia, um, when you sort of trace the tradition, it goes back to the December's of 1825. It goes back to the populists of the 1860s. Um, it goes back to various kinds of groups whose goal was to break the power of the monarchy, to break the power of the nobility, and to create a more egalitarian system within Russia. Um, and so this is really the sort of the, the grand task of Russian revolutionaries, is egalitarianism within the country. Um, and so Marxism gets sort of tacked onto this, right? So the Russian revolutionaries, their, their revolutionary education happens, for the, for the most part, really abroad um, in Europe, in exile in Zurich or in Paris or in London or somewhere. Um, more advanced countries with more advanced economies, industrial economies, working classes, and so on and so forth. Um, and the Marxist idea, of course, is that these working classes are going to take, um, you know, the commanding heights of the economy. They're going to take control of the factories. They're going to take control of production from the bourgeoisie in their own countries. Um, and so it's simply, it's a more advanced form of this, you know, egalitarian ethos that's already present in the Russian revolutionary tradition. And so in order to be a successful Russian revolutionary, um, what you have to do is, you know, you have to bring down the mighty and you have to, you know, equalize the economy. Um, that's ultimately the goal of the Russian Revolution. It's really, it's anti-capitalism, right, in a fundamental sort of egalitarian way. Um, the Chinese Revolution tradition doesn't begin with sort of 1825 and the Decembers the way the Russian Revolution tradition uh, begins. Um, the Chinese Revolution really begins with the Opium Wars. And that's the narrative the Chinese Communist Party tells today. But the Opium Wars is not a domestic revolution. The Opium Wars is an external invasion. Um, it's not that, yes, there was inequality in Qing China, of course, and there were nobles and there was, you know, poverty and everything else. Um, but that's not what inspires revolutionary transformation inside 19th century China. What inspires revolutionary transformation is the fact that China has been humbled by outsiders um, and that imperialists are now sort of running roughshod over, you know, the Qing dynasty. Um, and that really, you know, you look at the Opium Wars as the beginning of a series of sort of domestic upheavals and catastrophes. Um, inside China in the 19th century, you know, the Taiping Rebellion, other rebellions um, leading towards, you know, attempts at self-strengthening, leading to, you know, the, the, you know, the Hundred Days Reform, the Boxer Rebellion, the Sino-Japanese War. Um, and it's really a series of attempts to um, reform Chinese society internally in order to make China able to stand on its own two feet vis-a-vis -vis outsiders. And so while the test of success of the Russian Revolution is, does it produce um, you know, equality at home, the test of a Chinese revolution is, does it make China able to stand up to outsiders? Um, and so that's sort of the core of the tradition, even before you get to Marxism, right? One is really about anti-capitalism, one is about anti-imperialism um, because of the histories of their own two countries. Mm. So, okay, so that's the, yeah, that, as you say, is the kind of revolutionary, the kind of origins of revolution, the kind of drive to, uh, to, uh, uh, change the country in, in some particular way. And, and yeah, I think one very indicative moment you, you mentioned uh, in this introduction is just as a, it's almost as an aside, but I think it's very, very uh, revealing one that I hadn't quite uh, thought of. But the fact that in China, uh, the post-1949 era is referred to as Jiefang Ho after the liberation rather than Ge Ming Ho the, after the revolution, whereas in Russia, things are referred to according to that pre- and post-revolution 1917 uh, uh, sort of um, uh, kind of 
uh, juncture in time uh, is, is determined in terms of the revolution. Um, so if those are the, I mean, those are the underlying origins. Um, how, how then did Marxism and the kind of ideas that Marxism was advancing or, or, or was, was used get bolted on to those kind of underlying uh, distinct revolutionary uh, kind of underpinnings? Well, what, what Marxism does, and especially through, through Lenin, right, is several different things. So one is, as I just mentioned, um, Lenin makes this sort of indelible connection between imperialism and capitalism when he writes that imperialism is the highest age of capitalism. This means that, you know, it's one global process um, and that capitalism and imperialism are inextricably entwined and such that to be against one is to be against both. Um, so this is why, for example, you know, in the early years of the Soviet Union, um, even before it's pronounced the Soviet Union in 1919, 1920, um, as soon as the revolution fails to take place in Western Europe, especially in Germany, as it was supposed to, the next place they look for revolution is, you know, we can weaken the capitalist countries through their colonies. Um, and so they begin to take on the mantle of anti-imperialism. And this makes sense precisely because they have this notion that imperialism is a stage of capitalism. Um, and so, so what, what, what it does is create this global system that you can now be a part of in which, you know, we can take apart capitalism by taking apart the imperialist aspect of it. Um, and, and for China, Right. This also leads China precisely in the opposite direction. If we want to defeat imperialism, we also have to be against capitalism because capitalism necessarily means um, tying ourselves to a global economic system in which the imperialist countries are going to be inevitably more powerful. Right. If we are part of the capitalist system, then, you know, the United States, the British, the French and whoever else will still maintain their power over us because they run the international capitalist order. Uh, and so the only way to break away from imperialism, right, is to break away from capitalism as well. Um, so this, it's, it's, it's the indelible equation between the two, right, that therefore puts sort of the Soviet Union and China first together as an alliance and on a collision course because they both have to have ownership of the same revolution, which they think has to be comprehensive. Right, right. And, and, and this puts uh, kind of... Uh, Domestic agendas and, and, and domestic revolutionary programs immediately in in, in contact with uh, broader global picture and, and with with foreign policy, if you like. Um, and uh, I think one point that uh, is a sort of much broader point uh, that I think uh, probably does uh, interact with your with your deeper interest there in in, in philosophy and history and, and, and the place of uh, revolution as a and, and as of uh, kind of philosophical background to. Um, to politics in general, um, I think this this is something that uh, must relate to that. Um, but the, it, it specifically, the place of ideology within foreign policy uh, and and the, the place of uh, these revolutionary ideas within how each country is interacting with the wider world. So, how did your kind of understanding of ideologies placed within a foreign policy agenda develop over the course of uh, of putting the book together and doing the research for it? Well. So as you know, ideology and, and foreign policy is sort of a very old debate within the Cold War, um, going back to, you know, late 40s and 50s. And, and I mean, political scientists perpetually trying to understand, you know, the role of ideology in foreign policy. And it becomes a very sort of simplistic debate, um, especially seems to me during the time, um, this idea that you either have, you know, leaders who are completely cynical about ideology and they only believe in, you know, the interests of their countries, um, interests which are, by the way, you know, never never explicitly defined. It's assumed, right, that countries have natural interests that they simply understand um, without having to think about it, um, versus the idea that these have sort of, you know, ideologues who are simply fixated on a certain ideological um, endpoint 
um, and will do anything to achieve it. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't want to get into specific works. There was one book I read, which attempted to sort of um, distill Maoism into you know a series of axioms and then test how ideological Chinese foreign policy was by how often it adhered to these axioms. Um, and it just seemed to me that this is not, you know, this is not a realistic notion of how people actually operate. Um, what ideology is, um, in my understanding, is not, you know, a series of axioms that you either, you know, adhere to or you betray, you know, some sort of, you know, cynical realpolitik maneuver. Um, but ideology is what determines how you see the world, right? How you understand what your interests are, how you understand who a threat is, um, how you understand what means will achieve your interests um, and what means will not. Um, and so, you know, it comes to a basic thing like, you know, how do you figure out who is an ally? Who can you trust in the world? Um, allies are constantly betraying you. Um, well, you know, one way of figuring out who is an ally, if you're a Marxist, is to say, well, you know, what are the social origins of this person? What are the social origins of the people, you know, in the leadership of this country? You know, therefore, what are their interests? Are they likely to remain loyal? You know, is 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 someone like Nasser? Is he, you know, is he bourgeoisie? Is he, you know, a noble? Is he, um, you know, an aristocrat? Is he a peasant? Is he, you know, how do we understand his social origins and those, you know, people in power in Cairo? And therefore, can we trust Egypt as an ally? Um, and so, you know, once you make that determination, you can then do all sorts of things and say, well, you know, do we need Egypt? Is Egypt important? But the very fact that you've had to ask this question by first saying, you know, what are the social origins of the leadership? You know, therefore, can we trust them? Um, already shows that, you know, your perception of reality is determined by ideology. There is no sort of reality that precedes ideology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating reading and one which, as you mentioned, is particularly helpful uh, in, in, in this very kind of pregnant question around uh, the Cold War and how much, uh, yeah, ideology drove, uh, well, any, I guess, any aspect of it. I mean, it, it, you know, it is it is all too often reduced to this kind of real politic kind of battle of interests and uh, and and uh, you know ideologies um i don't know it's a tricky subject to take seriously but i think you do uh, but one i think that you demonstrate very clearly must be uh, taken seriously um but in terms of the arena of of this competition between uh, the ussr and china that that developed uh, you mentioned uh, lenin uh, and, and and even quite early on in the soviet union saw dismantling western hegemony uh, in the colonies as part of uh, a, an overall project to uh, introduce socialism. Um, was it was that the primary reason why China then followed uh, in its interest in uh, in in the, in the developing world um, during the period you cover here? I mean, why was it that that developing world became a particular arena for the Sino-Soviet competition? Well, I think it became so. Once the Soviets had embarked on this program. Um, in the early 1920s of sort of revolutionizing the colonial world, um, it became an indelible part of sort of, you know, the communist revolutionary agenda, even though it really sort of, um, I say, I would say moved off the top shelf in the 1930s and 1940s, um, you know, when fighting fascism and the alliance you know, to defeat the Nazis became the, the primary concern. Um, but it comes back in the late 1940s, um, early 1950s a little bit. Um, once decolonization begins, right, really, 47 in, you know, in, 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 in India and Pakistan and such. Um, and so initially China becomes part of this. Um, what the Soviets want to do during the alliance in the 1950s is sort of delegate Asia to China and say, you know, we'll run, you know, we'll worry about communism in, in Europe and other parts of the world. 
you worry about spreading communism, you know, the anti-imperial revolution in Asia. Um, and so there's, there's this idea in the early 1950s of an Asian common turn. Um, and the Chinese begin developing communist parties. They, they support um, they, they, they support North Korea. They support, um, you know, Ho Chi Minh and, and the Viet Minh in Vietnam. Um, they begin helping out communist parties elsewhere in Southeast Asia, in, in Myanmar and such, um, in Malaysia. Uh, and so it begins with the Chinese having this involvement with the blessing of the Soviets, actually sort of, you know, it's a junior partner to the Soviets. Um, but what happens is they begin to see the Soviets as having, as betraying the developing world. Um, and so they see the Soviets as basically prioritizing their own security um, and their relations with the West, um, with, with Western Europeans and the United States over um, the revolution, revolutionary interests of the developing world. Um, and so China begins to see that it's not that, you know, they're taking over the developing world from the Soviets, the Soviets have abandoned them. And the Soviets have abandoned, you know, the willingness for example, in Algeria, the Algerians are fighting and the Soviets, instead of, you know, giving the Algerians weapons and recognizing the Algerian provisional government, they say, we don't want to prejudice the chances of the French Communist Party taking power in Paris by supporting Algeria. And so to the Chinese, this is a betrayal of the revolution in Algeria. This is a betrayal of Africa, right, um, as a whole. So, and then, of course, once the Chinese begin to see the Soviets as a threat to them, and, you know, a threat to, to the revolutionary movement as a whole, the Chinese begin to look at the developing world and say, well, this is our potential constituency, right? The Soviets have the Warsaw Pact. They have, you know, a bigger economy. They have more weapons. They have more missiles. You know, where do we have our, our sources of support? Our sources of support are in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Right, right. And that leads us in quite well, I think, to the, uh, to the, to the actual uh, the, the, the drama and, the, and how, the, how the, the, the sort of division uh, plays out, um, specifically uh, in your first chapter, uh, in relation to uh, relations with <clears throat> with the West and uh, with uh, you know the peaceful coexistence, which appears there in chapter one. Uh, I mean, the book as a whole takes us through um, really nicely uh, through five five chronological chapters plus a conclusion of um, the, the various stages uh, of the uh, of, of the uh, competition as it as it unfolds, and each one really brings out a, a different, distinct era or sort of mini era because uh, each one is only uh, a couple of years to. Th- between two and sort of four or five years long, um, in how Sino-Soviet relations play out uh, in in relation to uh, the the third world or the uh, sorry the uh, well the developing world. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll get right into to chapter one, I think. And um, you you outline really quite uh, quite brilliantly how each place, uh, how how Moscow and Beijing each is reacting to the perceived new opportunities of decolonization, but also how that intermeshes with their increasingly frosty uh, relationship uh, as the um, sort of mid to late 50s and early 60s unfold. Um, When it came to uh, developing this um, post-40s, as you say, uh, engagement with uh, the developing world in both places, um, how much did uh, experts or, or, or politicians in both in either Moscow or Beijing actually know about uh, this wider sphere of, uh, of former Western colonies and so on. It's one thing to say uh, well, we're going to fight the, the imperialists in their former colonies and, and assist these countries, but uh, it's quite another thing, of course, to, uh, to to actually engage with the places with a knowledge base. And so, uh, how aware were uh, uh, the elites in, in Moscow and Beijing of of the places that they were going to be looking for their constituencies? Well, they were certainly at a great disadvantage vis-a-vis the West uh, when it came to expertise. Um, I mean, you have to remember the West, of course, the, were the colonial powers. So not only 
you know, had the British, the French, and others been on the ground, right, in, in Asia and Africa for, for decades at this point. But they'd also managed to teach the Asians, the Africans, their languages. So, you know, they could speak to people in English and French and Portuguese or whatever, and nobody could speak Russian, let alone Chinese. Um, very few people could speak Russian or Chinese. Um, you know, the elites that existed um, in Africa, for example, um, for the most part, had been educated in, in the UK or educated in France. Very few of them educated in Moscow. At that point, none of them had been educated in Beijing. Um, so there was a built-in advantage of having been the colonial power in terms of relations and expertise and, um, and languages. Uh, but the Soviets managed to build up expertise in Africa very, very quickly in the early 1960s. Um, it really became sort of, and not just, there's the International Department, um, which built its own version of expertise, and the KGB, which had a much bigger operation. Um, and, you know, they built a series of academic institutes um, and really created quite a, you know, a credible, um, you know, Africanist, um, uh, you know, Latin Americanist kind of scholarly base. Um, to go along with, there, there had been um, a, a significant um, Russian imperial uh, scholarly tradition in parts of Asia, um, in Central Asia, in Persia, in India, in Turkey. Um, not much of which had survived the Stalin era, but a few had. Um, and they were able to build on that as well. Um, so, you know, and they threw resources into it. Um, the Chinese, on the other hand, um, had many fewer resources than the Soviets did. They did not have the Russian imperial tradition of scholarly expertise. Um, and then, of course, in 1966, there's going to be the Cultural Revolution, um, which is basically going to shut down um, the academic uh, you know, growth of China for, for a good decade and a half. Um, and so really, the Chinese had very little expertise. Um, and there are some you know, amazing stories about first encounters of, of, of Chinese, especially in Africa. Um, you know, in, in Asia, to a certain degree, they're at least Southeast Asia, the Chinese have cultural and historical ties. Um, but in Africa, they were really introducing themselves for the first time. And, um, you know, some of the some of the conversations that Mao would have with uh, African delegations were just, um, you know, at the, the most basic level of ignorance. Um, it was, it's almost amazing to read. Um, I believe there's there's one book I read. Um, uh, I believe the author's name was was Al, Alan Hutchinson, perhaps, um, on from the 1970s in the in the Tazara Railway, when she talks about how when the first African students came to China in the 1960s, um, the Chinese doctors would literally wash them over and over again, believing they were black because they were dirty. Right, right. I mean, it has echoes of the uh, ignorance that I guess was a big part of uh, Western colonialism too for for a long time. But uh, it seems uh, it seems shocking uh, to uh, yeah to, to 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 hear that quite so quite so recently in a sense. But I suppose uh, yeah, I mean, uh, given given uh, China and Africa as a as a current topic uh, today, that's that's also quite interesting to reflect on uh, on, on what a. Uh, steep learning curve has, uh, has been necessary um, in, uh, in in Chinese engagement. Um, so, uh, in terms of this sort of expertise development, um, I mean, how did that interact with the developing understanding of what should be a re revolutionary program or a developmental program uh, for these um, developing countries, uh, as advanced by each of Moscow and Beijing? I mean. Um, clearly, as you say, if people are dealing with such a low level of awareness of what's going on on the ground, um, in, in some cases, or, or only developing an understanding later on through the 60s, as, as you described in the Soviet case, um, how did that play into the development of a, of a, of a program of, of what, what, what these countries need to do, if you like, in their decolonizing moments? 
Well, in a certain sort of sense, it played into it very well because if you think about it, if you don't know anything about a place um, or you have very little information about a place, right, it's very easy to have sort of a template. So Marxism says, well, you know, if you want to understand the economy, if you want to understand the politics of a place, you have to understand certain basic facts, right? So who owns the means of production in a, in a given society, right? What are the means of production? If it's, an, if, it's, if it's an agrarian society, who owns the land? Who owns the implements? Who owns the animals? Um, you know, to the degree that there's commerce, okay, who controls the trade? Who controls contact with foreigners? What sort of manufacturing is there? And who owns the means of manufacturing? Um, and so it gives you these basic questions to ask, to understand, right? And the idea is that if you understand the, the economics, you understand the politics, because of course, right, if the land is owned by these big landlords and all the manufactured goods are being controlled by merchants who are dealing with foreigners, right, then the political power must represent these two classes. And so you must have a state built on, you know, what's called a comprador bourgeoisie and some sort of traditional landowning class. And, you know, that explains the politics. And that should also tell you, you know, who the revolutionary forces are. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you don't have much understanding, Marxism gives you this place to start. Um, and then the question is, well, okay, um, so if we, know where, if we know what this country looks like economically and politically, um, what we want it to look like is something else. We want it to look like, you know, a country with an industrial economy, with factories and a working class. Um, you know, that's how we know how to build Marxism there. So now the question is, how do we get from point A to point B? Um, you know, how do, we get, how do we get the industry? How do we get the working class? Um, and, and who are the political forces that are going to make this happen? Um, so so it's, in a certain sense, it's precisely the ignorance, you know, the, the lack of, you know, too much information and complicating detail that allows you to create these sort of schema. Right. Right. No, I think, I, well, I think, uh, yeah, there are many spheres in which we see uh, being relatively unburdened by, uh, by knowledge uh, can, can be very helpful in uh, arriving at uh, uh, firm uh, opinions about, about matters uh, in all spheres of life. So uh, it's, I think, uh, interesting to see how that played out in this, in this sort of pretty high stakes uh, case. Um, and then I guess finally, in relation to this, this, uh, this chapter one, um, with peaceful coexistence and this idea that uh, Khrushchev was increasingly keen to promote uh, after during destalinization that that, uh, that there had to be a way of accommodating life with the West uh, from, from a Soviet perspective and this being a sort of bone of contention with with China I mean this is seen as being a kind of seminal moment in the split if you like in the division um, but of course there's a lot of discussion about when when is the split uh, when do we place the split in time uh, what do we see as the definitive uh, sort of turning points um, how do you see this from a sort of uh, from the perspective of the decolonizing world I mean are there clues that we can see within what was going on in the spheres that would become the main arenas for Sino-Soviet competition that give us a even finer picture of exactly when the split happened or uh, uh, kind of what we talk about as, yeah, as, as the split. Did you have any light to shed on that? Well, I, I think that the point I make in the book about the timing of the split is that, you know, if you read other accounts of the split that are based largely upon bilateral relations or sort of, you know, the personalities of Mao and Khrushchev, um, the idea is that, well, you know, these are communist allies and therefore it must be that somebody broke the alliance apart. Do we blame Mao? Do we blame Khrushchev? And what event is it? Is it 56 and desalinization? Is it, you know, the visit to the United States? Is it pulling out of, you know, uh, uh, the Soviets pulling out their experts? Um, you know, so you, you tend to try to look and say, you know, which personality can we blame it on and what event can we point to? 
Um, and the argument that I make in the book is actually that it's precisely because these are actually two fundamentally different revolutions, right? As we talked about in the beginning, right, with different um, sort of trajectories and ancestries going back long before the advent of Marxism in either country, um, that the revolutions themselves sort of have different contents and different objectives. And so what that means is, even at points, like I talk about in chapter two in 1961, when they're trying to sort of repair the split and they're trying to repair relations, their agendas are putting them in different directions, right? So these are countries that are being pulled apart, you know, almost despite themselves. And Mao eventually does make a decision that he wants to sort of use the Sino-Soviet split uh, as a tool of domestic politics to sort of take down Liu Xiaoqi, take down Deng Xiaoping, um, the so-called revisionists, you know, in Beijing. But even before he makes that decision, um, the very different agendas of the two countries are pulling them, pulling them apart, even when they're trying to make peace. So the idea is that really the split is sort of built in from the fact these are two very different revolutions to begin with. Right, right. No, that's a really fascinating new, new I think, new look at that, uh, you know, seeing these things, how, how they, the dynamics play out. Uh, it's almost counterintuitive to sort of imagine that you could read such a thing from so far away from the, the centres of power and those key actors that you mentioned are always the preoccupation of people trying to divine when exactly the split occurred. But actually, yeah, I mean, viewed from the from the sort of peripheries of the power of each place, you actually uh, can can uh, see see things in a pretty uh, compelling and clear new way. Um, but you, uh, you you mentioned chapter two there, so we'll, we'll move on to that. Um, chapter two is entitled "New Frontiers: Development and Struggle, 1961 to 1963." Um, and I guess this is where we see really some of this, um, uh, some of the actual kind of competition. Uh, as it as it actually um, is manifested on the ground, starting to play out. Um, so, uh, could you give us a sense of what these new frontiers that you mentioned in the chapter title were at this moment within uh, within the decolonizing world? Where where was the focus shifting? Well, so the, the new frontier, the new frontier, is, of course, is a term taken from the Kennedy administration, right? JFK is um, is inaugurated in nineteen sixty one, uh, and JFK sort of takes up this idea of modernization um, and an aid war with the Soviets in a way that Eisenhower had not. Um, and the Soviets, right, had really begun a uh, massive aid project in 58, uh, but it expands very, very rapidly about the late 1960s. And they become, so this is really sort of the, the golden age of kind of um, the two models as expressed through aid. Because Khrushchev's idea is not the Cold War ends, but the Cold War will not be fought militarily. The Cold War will be fought through economic competition. And so this is really the, sort of the height of the, the two development models in Africa. Um, 1960 is the year when most of Africa becomes independent. And so it's 1960, 61, that you reach this sort of high point in aid. And so that's when the Soviets really have to develop their model. You know, what is it going to look like? And the model basically is, you know, in countries which have agrarian economies and no industry, um, you can think of many different ways of developing. Um, and the Soviet approach is to say, well, they need industry. And they need industry because without industry, you have no working class. Without a working class, you have no communist party. Um, ideally, we want that industry to be state controlled. Um, the state does not have the resources for it. There's no capital. So we have to supply the capital. So the Soviet approach is we're going to build you the factories in order to create the working class that is then going to overthrow your regime, uh, which you know did not go over very well, for example, in Guinea and, and, and in Mali in the early 1960s. Um, but that's the idea. And the Chinese initially don't really dispute this. The Chinese, again, this is the Great Leap Famine. They don't really have the resources to compete aid-wise. They, really they don't have enough food for their own people. They don't have enough food to send to Ghana or Mali or anywhere. Um, but 
as they begin to see the Soviets as a threat to them and a threat to the developing world revolution, um, and this reaches its high point in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when as far as they're concerned, the Soviets um, betrayed the developing world and you know, gave, you know, gave up the Cubans, um, and the Chinese saw this as a direct security threat to them, but this is at the same time that the Soviets supposedly uh, refused to defend China against India uh, in the Himalayan War. Um, that's when the Chinese realized that you know, the Americans have their aid program, the Soviets have their aid program. We have to have our own you know, plan, our own aid program, because we have to offer something to the developing world ourselves. Otherwise, the Soviets are going to shut us out and we'll have no constituency. So that's where the chapter sort of ends, is the Chinese decide they need to develop their own model of how to develop an economy. Right. No, exactly. And, and, and uh, I think that that point that you uh, make about how up to 61-ish or, or even a little bit beyond that, China was still trying to tweak Soviet the Soviet agenda. It was still trying to say to Moscow, with faith in Moscow, saying, look, you know, maybe couldn't you do this a different way? Um, and, uh, but, and, and then eventually, obviously, was drawn out to deciding that it needed to propose its own entirely separate um separate agenda there um so uh, yeah we'll move on to move on to chapter three where uh, i guess uh, the, the competition uh, the battle for supremacy as you entitled chapter three there uh, starts to starts to become even more uh, intense really um in in many different spheres um and uh, part of this uh, again i hadn't fully appreciated but uh, included china uh, just started or chinese uh, sort of propagandists starting to label the ussr as a another white power another uh, kind of European colonial power, no different to the previous exploiters of uh, of, the, of the developing world. Um, a very very interesting um, moment to to note there. Um, but I just wonder. I mean, as as these sort of two models started to play out, um, I mean, how do they differ from one another? Uh, you mentioned there the kind of origins and Khrushchev's articulation of the uh, non-capitalist path of development. How did that differ from China's uh, kind of developing promotion of? what I think you say it called national independence. Um, what were those, what, what did those two programs start to uh, sort of say that was, that was very different from each other? So the key was that the Soviets actually saw their model development as being, you know, the beginning of the road to socialism and socialism means industry. And it means ideally state controlled industry. So the Soviets wanted to skip the stage of private enterprise and go directly towards state controlled industry. Um, and so that was their goal. The goal of this was to get to a socialist economy. The Chinese thought that, you know, these countries are a long way away from a socialist economy. Um, and so the goal here is not socialism, certainly not, you know, anything like state control, the means of production. The goal here is simply to strengthen these countries uh, against the imperialist powers to sort of assert their independence um, by creating cohesive states. And the way you create cohesive states um, is by you know, providing the population with a standard of living that is superior to what they had under the colonial system. Um, and so the Chinese focus is not on building industry, certainly not state-controlled industry. The Chinese focus is on you know, developing agriculture, developing light industry, textiles, food processing, stuff like that, um, in order to immediately raise standard of living of the population, to create um, you know, loyalty to the current national government, um, and you know, to kick foreigners out. So... The Soviets actually didn't mind having foreigners in the economy as long as the foreigners were doing things like investing in factories and mines and such, because at least they're developing capitalism and building working class. The Chinese said, no, the first thing we have to do is get rid of the foreigners, right? Make the country stand on its own two feet, help it feed itself and clothe itself, you know, become an independent country and we'll worry about socialism somewhere down the road. 
Right, right. And and I think, uh, again, it's very persuasive the way you outline how uh, the kind of Chinese experience in all of this uh, plays into that kind of a perspective. Uh, I mean, you mentioned just uh, uh, earlier about um, how important the uh, uh, response to the Soviets' failure to back up China really in the Sino-Indian uh, border war um, in the in, in the uh, early 60s there um, was how, how important that was to uh, China sort of deciding to go its own way. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, obviously it's a complicating factor in the picture as a whole that China itself is part of the world that feels the need or is, is feeling um, the uh, strong drive to decolonize, to, uh, yeah, as you say, <laughs> kick out the foreigners. Um, but I just wonder, uh, and perhaps uh, this would be an opportunity for you to mention some of uh, any of your archival experiences in the countries concerned, but the response from uh, countries, uh, you mentioned Guinea and Mali, where things haven't played out so well from a Soviet point of view. Uh, I mean, there are many cases elsewhere where um, things didn't necessarily go entirely according to plan. Um, but what was the response to this kind of new fractiousness between uh, the Soviets and, and, and Chinese efforts to ingratiate themselves in in Africa and elsewhere um, from from the from the from the ground up? What what was their what was the sort of response and what did your research reveal about uh, how things were seen in the countries concerned? Well, many of them were quite frightened by the idea that um, you know they had to choose between the Soviets and the Chinese, and that furthermore, you know, if you chose one, the other one became your enemy. Um, so, you know, particularly there was a point in which Julius Nereri, the president of Tanzania, tells, you know, the American ambassador something along the lines of, you know, you guys think this is East versus West. What really, we're really scared about is East versus East. You know, the Soviets and the Chinese are the ones playing for keeps. Um, so there was, you know, a good deal, I think, of, of fear about that. Um, you know, amazingly, considering the, when the way the Western literature perceives how a Soviet split, and there's sort of this idea that, you know, how could they be at, you know, at odds? They're both communist countries. They both believe in the same things. Um, I didn't get the impression, um, you know, in, in African archives, for example, that uh, they didn't understand what the divide was about. Or that they saw, you know, they should be on the same side. Um, you know, the, 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 their ideologies are indistinguishable. Uh, they were quite clear on the differences, it seems. Um, they were, you know, clear on the differences in terms of, you know, strategies of development. They were clear on the differences in terms of the attitude of, of you know Soviet and Chinese experts, um, they were clear in the differences in terms of race. Um, the Soviets were you know very much downplaying the idea of race or ethnicity, and the Chinese would play it up. Um, and so on the ground, you know, it was it was quite clear what the differences were. Mm, mm. And how did your I mean your and the archival work you conducted uh, in in various places? How how did that uh, how did that play out? How did what play out? Well, the uh, yeah, the actual practicalities of uh, archival research in, yeah, as you mentioned, Mozambique and and some of these uh, some of these places. How many of the countries uh, did you manage to get round and sort of see local uh, local documentation on on this period? So I was able to see documentation in a number of countries. The problem is um, not necessarily there aren't that many of them that keep sort of comprehensive documentation from the early nineteen sixties available to foreign researchers. Um, particularly in Africa and in, in Asia, it's a matter of more of access in many cases. Um, so I've, I've seen some documents in Tanzania, um, Mozambique, I saw some documents that I was not technically allowed to see, um, in, in Zambia, in Chile, um, and a few other places. Um, so it's really a matter of, you know, were records kept, uh, are they, you know, still being kept in Tanzania documents go, you know, missing all the time. Um, Political parties sometimes don't keep archives, uh, so it's it's 
it's really hit and miss, and it's actually you know quite um, it's it's quite beneficial that at least communist countries tend to produce a lot of paper and be very um, studious about you know keeping their paper in order. Right, right. I guess the documentation in itself can be a, a sort of manifestation of differing cultural uh, orientations of different you know, bureaucratic cultures um, that, uh, that that may represent in themselves uh, some degree of the uh, cultural incompatibilities that may have uh, actually emerged when Chinese and Soviet uh, experts and, and political technologists and so on were trying to, uh, you know, uh, I guess... Uh, uh, implement their projects on the ground there. I mean, they, we can almost read that up to the present just in the very uh, materiality of the archives, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, well, uh, you mentioned this. So we discussed there the um, divergence between the two the two projects, and um, ultimately, uh, you, you, you show in chapter three how really China's policy uh, in this regard eventually uh, collapsed or, or sort of uh, hadn't didn't didn't really quite manage to successfully stand on its own two feet uh, in opposition to. The uh, Soviet model. Um, moving forward into Chapter Four, where you deal with the Cultural Revolution uh, and particularly the period sixty six to sixty nine uh, that you uh, that you delineate there for the chapter. Um, how did uh, how did the foreign policy kind of failures that China uh, had confronted in the developing world um, feed into the Cultural Revolution or result from the Cultural Revolution? What was the what was the relationship there? Well, so it seems that you know, in part, the Cultural Revolution is at least enabled by the fact that China's attempt to challenge the Soviet Union really collapses in late 65. Um, so China's major success, really, in Asia um, is persuading the largest non-ruling communist party in the world, the PKI in Indonesia, uh, to sort of follow Chinese model. Um, and the PKI attempts to seize power uh, in the fall of 1965, um, apparently with Chinese support, um, or at least Chinese knowledge, um, and then is subsequently wiped out. Um, so that basically eliminates China's uh, major ally in Asia um, and really major victory in the developing world. And that combined with the fact that China fails to organize a second Bandung conference um, to the exclusion of the Soviet Union, the idea would be that there'd be a second Bandung with all the Asian African countries and China would sort of preside as kind of, you know, the great power of Asia and Africa. Um, and it hopes to exclude the Soviets from this, saying the Soviets are not an Asian country. Um, the Soviets managed to get themselves invited. So China failed to sort of establish itself as a sort of, um, you know, uh, um, representative of Asia and Africa. So because of that, its strategy of challenging the USR has failed by the end of 1965. Um, and this is one more thing, you know, for Mao to sort of blame the existing leadership, you know, Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping in Beijing uh, for. It's also, um, you know, means that the stakes uh, of sort of, you know, upturning the table of uh, Chinese foreign policy uh, are much lower at that point because it's already failed. Um, and so there's a, that sort of leads to the Cultural Revolution. Um, and what sort of snaps them out of this isolation is then um, three years later when they're uh, on the verge of war with the USSR um, and they're afraid that they have no allies uh, and they have no one to support them in case of war. Um, that sort of breaks them out of the isolation they've imposed upon themselves three years earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and in terms of the uh, kind of Efforts that, that China had made in that uh, in that sort of key period during the uh, during the, the sort of mid period of the sixties, I suppose, leading up to the Cultural Revolution. Um, I mean, kind of moving forward right through to the last part of the book and even into Chapter Five, where uh, we move on to uh, the three worlds idea and uh, the three D as you talk about the uh, détente, development, and disarmament, uh, which takes us right up into the seventies. I mean, how had that period of competition between the two countries kind of changed? 
the revolutionary agendas or, or the kind of overall picture of what revolutionary struggle was seen to be. Uh, I mean, China clearly, as you say, had, had not succeeded in establishing a fully independent model, but you know, it's, it had its activities managed in some way to shift the terms of the debate or, or, or kind of change the, 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 the sort of uh, discussion that, that the Soviet Union also felt it had to engage with. Well, so there are basically two periods of Chinese challenge, really. Um, there's the period of the 1960s when China is challenging the USSR for leadership of the, you know, the international communist movement, the global left. Um, and there's sort of Chinese challenge in the 1970s when China comes back after the Cultural Revolution um, and now, you know, joins the UN in 1971. Um, it presents itself as having a third world veto. And so instead of trying to lead, you know, essentially the international communist movement, leftist parties, leftist movements within the developing world, instead what China does is say, you know, the third world itself is becoming a movement. The non-aligned movement has become, has become prominent. The idea of the third world itself as a bloc, um, the G77 at the UN has become popular in the 1970s. And China attempts to lead this, particularly at the, you know, the special sessions of the UN 1974-75 in the wake of the OPEC crisis. Um, and so instead of trying to lead the international communist movement in the third world, China is now trying to lead the entire third world. Um, and so it's a new kind of, there's, there are new elements of the agenda. And what the Soviets find in both cases, in the 60s and the 1970s, that in order for them to sort of maintain the position of leadership of the left, they have to adopt elements of the Chinese agenda. So in the 1960s, that means that when the Soviets once supported peaceful coexistence, now they have to be willing to actually support um, armed struggle, you know, armed struggle in Vietnam, armed struggle in South Africa, armed struggle in Angola, armed struggle in a lot of places. Um, and the 1970s, it means they have to uh, sort of champion the new third world agenda. They have to champion the idea of changing the international terms of trade. They have to champion the idea of, um, you know, cartels, of, you know, removal of military bases, of everything else that sort of is on the third world agenda in the 1970s. So the Soviets find that, you know, yes, they have the resources um, to defeat the Chinese, but only ultimately by adopting the Chinese agenda for the developing world. So they find themselves by the end of this, you know, supporting, um, you know, insurgencies or counterinsurgencies, fighting wars basically in the 1980s in, in Angola, in Ethiopia, in Mozambique, in Cambodia, in Nicaragua, um, all because they've taken upon themselves the idea of, you know, supporting third world militarily. Um, they are now supporting the idea of, you know, some sort of international, you know, shift in terms of trade. Um, so anything that the third world sort of wants, the Soviets find themselves being, you know, obliged to support. Um, and in the process, they really sort of, you know, lose the thread of supporting the working class revolution in the West. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a, that's, that's a pretty uh, interesting kind of, uh, well, the, the bigger picture there of whether the Soviets "Quote unquote," won uh, this uh, this tussle, this struggle. Um, it, it really it really raises the uh, the question of uh, to what extent it's possible to to say that, or, or um, what kind of a what kind of a victory it might be seen to be, um, and and that constant presence of the Chinese uh, challenge, as you say, both in the sixties and then in the seventies. Um, is, is is a really important factor, and, and you go into a lot more detail in chapter five about new ideas coming out uh, under Deng Xiaoping's leadership, um, and and how uh, this year brings about a kind of new divergence between the Chinese and Soviet agendas. Um, but uh, just to kind of move forward, and, and, and as we move towards wrapping up, um, in the conclusion, you you kind of bring uh, all of these these threads together, and and, and I guess reprise uh, how these uh, revolutionary origins that we addressed right at the very beginning, had their sort of threads weaving throughout the entire uh, 20, sort of later 20th century history of competition between the, the two sides. Um, 
how about sort of bigger transformations? I mean, you mentioned there uh, that, that, that really the Soviet Union had had to make a lot of concessions to uh, Chinese ideas in how it conducted some of its foreign policy in the developing world. But how about the sort of system of international relations more generally? Um, and and uh, we discussed there the sort of relationship between ideology and international relations in in, in socialist countries. But uh, how, how are the after effects of, of the broader change in international relations living on uh, right up to the present? Well, I mean, as you know, China's very much interested in Africa today. Um, and, you know, this is going back to, you know, the, the origin of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, um, which is now about a dozen years old. Um, and, you know, in the West, I think, until recently, at least, um, I think things are now changing, especially in the United States. Um, the perception was, you know, that um, China was telling the story about we're only interested in, you know, in, in economics, we're interested in business. Um, and yet, right, if you... If, if you see the transcripts of what happens at these FOCAC forums, right, China still very much um, talks about, you know, common imperialist struggle, common experience with oppression, um, the idea that, you know, there is some sort of common ground between Asia and Africa that, um, you know, they have to stand together against the West. Um, and I was just actually just in Kenya a couple of weeks ago, um, and, you know, where China has just built, you know, its its second major railway in Africa after the one in the 1970s that it built in Tanzania, um, and you know, and 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 it's amazing in the sense that you know it's it's cost 25 percent more per kilometer than any other railway in the world. Um, it has no chance whatsoever of being economically viable. It's a single track railway, um, which you know can't carry more than 10 or 12 trains a day, um, so it can't possibly pay for itself. Um, this means, of course, that, you know, there is a contract and the Chinese will one day have to find a way to either repossess the railroad or find some other way to get paid back from the Kenyans. Um, and so, you know, th the point is, this is another project that is being sold by both sides as being purely economic. And yet, you know, the actual economic justification does not exist. So somehow it's political, even though everybody swears it's economic. Um, and I think that's, that's, you know, an interesting notion. And we think about the Belt and Road more broadly, and, you know, this is a small part of the Belt and Road, but the Belt and Road is being sold to the world as, you know, as, as a purely economic, um, uh, you know, initiative. Um, and yet so much of it is clearly political. Um, and that traces back to a lot of what's actually happening in this book, right? So in a certain sense, when you think about, you know, the anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist revolutions, um, we, we imagine in the West, right, that we won the Cold War. You know, so whatever, when we talk about the Soviets, the Chinese, communism, whatever, at the end, we win. Um, the truth is that, you know, the anti-capitalist revolution fails, but the anti-imperialist revolution does not, right? Um, imperialism is decisively overthrown. Um, and if you think about it discursively, right, you can't even really defend imperialism anymore. It's sort of, you know, politically unthinkable to defend imperialism. Um, and so, so in that sense, right, that part of the, that part of the revolution actually won. Um, and that's the part the Chinese Communist Party still imagines itself to be the champion of. Um, so, you know, that sort of historical ideological legacy hasn't really disappeared or been discarded in Beijing at all. Right. Even as Russia has more or less completely disappeared as a, as a kind of significant player in most of these places that, that, that you discuss in the book. I mean, there's still pockets of, of influence there, but uh, or, or 
kind of connection and, and some very old nostalgic uh, ties. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that that provides an extremely uh, compelling way of, of, of looking at uh, yeah what is obviously a particularly urgent and contemporary situation. Um, so I think that's probably also a pretty good place to uh, to leave it. Um, but uh, so thanks very much, Jeremy, for uh, for your time today. Um, before uh, we let you go uh, completely, I'll perhaps just ask you uh, about something you. Uh, Reference earlier on your your kind of current projects and what you're up to. Um, what what uh, what is this sort of global scope uh, project you have on the go at the moment? Well, so the, the book I'm currently working on right now um, is a book called "Right for Revolution: Building Socialism in the Third World," um, and the idea is sort of look at from the third world perspective um, at socialism as a project. You know, the idea being that in the 1940s nobody really knew what socialism looked like in the third world. Um, and so it's really a process of trial and development, a, 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 a process of trial and error um, throughout the Cold War, figuring out, you know, how do we how do you build socialism in a country that is primarily agrarian? How do you build socialism in a country um, in which people see, you know, race as the primary division or ethnicity as opposed to class? How do you build socialism in a country in which, you know, religious authorities have a tremendous amount of power and most people are religious themselves? Um, and so, you know, answers to these questions evolve over time. And the idea is that, by the end of the Cold War, by the 1980s and 1990s, what socialism looks like and this idea of what socialism is has changed significantly from what it was in the 1940s. And so going to the post-Cold War era, and you know, we live in a time, especially in the United States, where the word of socialism has probably never been as prominent as it, you know, in the last 50 years as it is today. Um, the socialism that we have now is still very much a product of this development through the Cold War. Um, and so the book, as I've written it, is about the, the, the third world. And so um, there's five different countries tracing the experience, uh, five different chapters tracing the experience of five different countries, uh, namely uh, Indonesia under Sukarno, Tanzania under Nyerere, Chile under Allende, um, Angola and the Angolan Civil War, and then ending with the Iranian Revolution of 79, um, looking at why Iran did not go communist in 79. Um, and so that's where the arc of the second book. Wow, brilliant! Well, that sounds um, absolutely tremendous, and and yeah, I guess really uh, it brings you back to to your kind of uh, philosophical historical origins or kind of uh, political origins of, of your interest in in this subject at large. I think that will tell us an awful lot about uh, what, what socialism is and has been, and and the relationship between the two. So that sounds fantastic. Um, but Jeremy, thank you so much uh, again for being on the show today. It was uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on, Ed. Uh, and listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and we will be back with you very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>